There are over 500 animals on Canada's list of wildlife species at risk. One of these is Lithobates pipiens, the northern leopard frog. I sang all night, the moon shone on me through the trees. My name is Sean Willett. This is The Red List. No brothers left, and there will be no more after me. Amphibians are old. Like, really old. The first animal that we could reasonably call an amphibian pulled itself out of the water about 370 million years ago, only a hundred or so million years after the first appearance of complex life. These early amphibians were the evolutionary stepping stone that allowed the development of all other land animals with backbones, which includes us. So, in a way, we're all technically amphibians, which is why the term amphibian is often purposely avoided by many biologists. We're going to use it, though, just to make things easier. But for specificity's sake, you should know that amphibians, as we know them today, the group that includes frogs, salamanders, and other similarly slippery creatures, can be more accurately referred to as Lisa amphibians. They haven't been around for quite as long, evolving a mere 250 million years ago, but they still beat out mammals, birds, snakes, crocodiles, and, well, uh, you get the idea. Frogs and salamanders are pretty damn old. A living legacy of a lost world. Like our ancestors, their lives are irrevocably tied to water. They lay their eggs in water, their young are fully aquatic, and even after they change to their adult forms, they still have to constantly keep themselves moist. They breathe partially through their skin, so if they don't, they lose water a lot faster than we do. But while amphibians have been around for quite a long time, they might not always be. This group of animals, which has survived dinosaurs, several ice ages, and not one but two mass extinctions, has been backed into a corner. A full 43% of amphibian species are threatened with extinction, and over 120 species have already gone extinct in the past few decades. All around the world, frogs and salamanders have been dying off in droves. And Canada is no exception. There are over 20 species of frog in Canada, but for many Canadians, there might as well just be one. The northern leopard frog. 
They're kind of almost the, the stereotypical frog. So they're fairly large. They've got that robust and those big back legs for the, the long jumps. And they're also generally green or, or brown with spots all over them that have a gold ring around them. So they're pretty distinctive. Like it, it, when you see one, you're like, oh yeah, that's a leopard frog because of the spots. And it's clearly like it's, you know, the frog that's probably in your mind. That was Marcus Sommers, local expert on northern leopard frogs. I work for the, the Calgary Zoo Conservation Research Center now. I work as a researcher as a biologist studying northern leopard frogs. But before he worked at the zoo, Somers was an undergraduate student at the University of Calgary, where he also did research on northern leopard frogs in Western Canada. For that project, I was looking at different ways to predict breeding behavior so that it's easier to detect when a site is a breeding site. Like most amphibians, northern leopard frogs won't just lay their eggs anywhere. They look for uh, not necessarily ephemeral ponds, but often semi-permanent ponds or shallow ponds. And the reason they like those is they're much warmer. It's easier for the eggs and tadpoles to develop. And they're also usually free from predators like fish. But they don't just look for that perfect pond. For northern leopard frogs and humans alike, location is everything when starting a family. Northern leopard frogs have a bit of more of a complex biology than a lot of other frog species in that they need different habitat types throughout their, their season. So they need an overwintering habitat, a breeding habitat, and a, a summer foraging habitat. Because they need these three different habitat types, usually it'll have good connectivity with the other two. So often, the most common one that we see is a, a small, shallow pond that's fairly close to either a lake, uh, a reservoir, a creek, something like that, a more permanent body of water. So basically they lay the eggs in the, in the shallow pond, they metamorph into frogs, and then they disperse into the surrounding areas to feed over the summer, and then all come to that permanent water body to overwinter. Unlike some other Canadian frogs, northern leopard frogs don't freeze solid during the winter. Instead, they, uh, do something else? We're not entirely positive, to be honest, um, what's going on because it's really hard to, to track them and study them through the winter. But the, the general idea, and, and we know this is at least partially true, it may not be the whole story, but um, they seem to go to water bodies that have high dissolved oxygen so that they can kind of just slow their bodies down. It's not technically hibernation, but it's similar at the bottom of these water bodies and just they breathe through their skin through the winter and then uh, when the ice melts, they come back out. Whatever they are really doing all winter, northern leopard frogs need those large permanent water bodies to do it. Just like they need warm ponds for breeding and wetlands for finding food. And historically, these frogs have been able to find these habitats all across Canada, from BC all the way to Newfoundland. Even now, in many parts of the country, northern leopard frogs are just as numerous as ever so much so that they're the frog species most often used for dissections in high school biology labs. That's how unconcerned we are with this species going extinct. But just because a species is doing well in general, doesn't mean it's doing well everywhere. And the northern leopard frog definitely isn't doing well everywhere. So basically, there's kind of three different distinct uh, populations that we recognize in Canada. There's the eastern population, which is doing quite well. There's the prairie or plains population, which is what we have here in Alberta, and they're at risk. And then we have the Rocky Mountain population or the mountain population, and they're uh, endangered. I just want to make one quick digression. It can be easy to forget sometimes that managing a species doesn't just come down to sheer total numbers. Species often exist in discrete populations 
sometimes separated by entire continents or even oceans. And managing these separate groups is just as important as managing the species as a whole. If we don't, then these populations can be wiped out, and local ecosystems can fall apart pretty quickly. This kind of localized extinction is known as extirpation, and unless conservationists can stop declining populations, it's a real possibility for northern leopard frogs in western Canada. Their numbers have seen a sharp, steady decline in the last few decades, and while this drop has started to stabilize in recent years, they're still a long way from any kind of recovery. But why are these western populations hurting in the first place? Well, it could be the very same thing that's been linked to amphibian declines all around the world. Petrachocotridium dendrobatidis, better known as chytrid. We have a disease that's come to Canada, no one's quite sure when it came, but it's an international phenomenon that we're seeing with amphibians, and it's called chytrid fungus. You've probably heard of it. Basically what it does, and it's not always fatal, but it usually has um, at least sublethal effects where the frog probably won't go on to reproduce, and so it might as well be fatal from an ecological perspective. This fungal disease has hit the planet's amphibians like a truck, going from a complete unknown to an international crisis in just a few decades. It kind of sprung into, you know, everyone's attention uh, in the early 2000s. It was probably around before that, but it wasn't until then that we really saw the mass die-offs in places like Australia, Central America, North America. And while its spread has captured the attention of the scientific community, there is still much we don't quite understand about this deadly disease. It's a little bit of a, still a mystery because people have done a lot, a lot of genetic work on this fungus and are still sort of trying to figure out what happened and how this happened, why it happened. That was author and journalist Elizabeth Colbert. I am the author of Field Notes from a Catastrophe, and the sixth extinction, and I am a staff writer at The New Yorker. Colbert won a Pulitzer for the sixth extinction, which is, unsurprisingly, about extinction. The name refers to the fact that, up until now, there have been five major extinction events in Earth's history. What Colbert and many scientists argue is that we're currently in the middle of another one. A sixth extinction one that we are causing. Colbert begins her book by documenting her trip to Panama to investigate the mass die-offs of rainforest frog species. What had happened was people actually were watching as this, um, what they knew at that point was a, a fungus was moving across Central America. It, it was moving, it seemed to be moving from west to east. And so they watched frogs disappear from the rainforest moving west to east, and they realized it was getting closer and closer to the habitat of a particularly amazing frog called the Panamanian golden frog, which is a beautiful, bright yellow frog that was considered a good luck symbol in Panama. And, you know, not just because of that, not just because of its sort of prettiness, but just because they didn't want to lose all these frogs, they rushed out into the rainforest and um, collected a lot of amphibians from several different species and, and put them in this special biosecure facility that has been built in El Valle, the town of El Valle. 
The fact that conservationists felt like the only way to protect these frogs was by locking them in a quarantine facility should give a pretty good idea of just how dangerous chytrid can be. Not only does it spread fast, but it targets an organ that every amphibian deeply relies on. The skin. What it does is it affects the keratin, and basically it ends up that they have trouble breathing through their skin. It also can contract their skin, which means that their, their muscles aren't going to work as effectively and they can't hunt or avoid predators as effectively. And all of this is caused by a single species of fungus, a member of a group called Chytridiomycota. There are hundreds of species that fall within this group, and thankfully, almost all of these are completely harmless. But there's one strain of this, of this fungus, which is called the global pandemic strain, and that's the one that kills all these amphibians. And it seems to have shown up in very disparate parts of the world right around the same time. Still, no one is exactly sure where it originated, where this strain originated. But we do know how it spread. Want to take a guess? From the pattern, scientists have concluded that you know, almost certainly had to be moved around the world by, by people somehow. Chytrid is what's known as an invasive pathogen, one of many that have been spread around the planet by people. These pathogens can unbalance ecosystems and can quickly wipe out entire species. This is why Colbert chose Chytrid to be the focus of the first chapter of the sixth extinction. It was about basically how we are moving things around the world, and that can have very, very surprising um, and unintended and disastrous consequences when you bring creatures that evolve separately for many, many millions of years, you bring them together, you get some very nasty surprises. And there's another chapter in the book dealing also, perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, with another fungus that was brought from Europe that is killing bats in the U.S. and in Canada and is very widespread now and has caused tremendous mortality in bats. Of course, the spread of these pathogens isn't due to maliciousness, or was it in any way intentional? We just didn't know. We were careless. But carelessness comes at a cost. And Chytrid is proof enough of that. I mean, in some cases, it killed off or really, really dramatically reduced in numbers of frogs that were very, very common, you know, just the kind of frogs you actually did find in, you know, puddles in pretty populated places. And then in some cases it had killed off species that were confined to a very tiny slice of a, like, for example, the, one of the most spectacular examples was someone was studying um, this frog called the, the golden toad, actually, in uh, Costa Rica, which was a really beautiful orange color, interestingly, although it was called golden. And from one year to the next, the animal just disappeared. The sudden extinction of the Costa Rican golden toad is a famous example of the dangers of chytrid and helped to bring public awareness of the impact of this disease on amphibians. The Golden Toad is even the subject of the Mountain Goats verse I use for the show's theme song. Like the Dodo or the Tasmanian Tiger, it has become a symbol of human-caused extinction, a symbol of the danger that we can pose to the world around us. 
But despite increasing public awareness of chytrid, scientists have yet to find a way to reliably stop its spread. The disease now affects over 30% of frog species, including the northern leopard frog. Chytrid has been found in members of the species across their western range and has been closely linked to their declining numbers over the past few decades. But you might have noticed something strange here. Something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If northern leopard frogs in the west have been infected with chytrid, and if chytrid is so fast spreading and hard to control, then how come it hasn't reached the species' eastern population? Well, that's where things get complicated. You see, chytrid has reached the northern leopard frogs in the east. For all we know, it may have even gotten to them first. The difference is, it's just not killing them. We see more resistance to it in the eastern population than we do in the, the western two populations, and so that's contributing to the fact that the eastern population is doing much better. Because while chytrid is truly dangerous to some frog species, sometimes having close to a 100% mortality rate, like with the frogs in Panama. This isn't the case for all frog species. Like Sommer said earlier, chytrid can have non-lethal effects, effects that species like the northern leopard frog can usually handle as long as they're not facing too many other stresses at the same time. And if a, a population isn't, isn't secure to start with, maybe it's stressed out from development or, and it's not necessarily anything to do with humans. I mean, it could be any sort of stressor, but on top of that, you add something like chytrid and it has awful effects on them, yeah. Think of it like getting the flu. For someone who's already sick, it can be potentially life-threatening, but it's not much of a problem if a healthy person gets it. And the eastern northern leopard frog population is a lot more healthy than their cousins in the west. You've got more water is what it boils down to, right? Out east, you've got more lakes, you've got more ponds, you've got more available habitat. And it's not being as, as quickly and intensively developed as it is in the west. So as soon as you, you drain a wetland to make a field or you, you change your irrigation patterns, you start diverting water, that takes away from the wetlands. And when there's fewer available, that has a much bigger impact. If a northern leopard frog is going to survive chytrid, they need to spend as little energy as possible looking for the types of habitats they need to survive. The wetlands for finding food, the shallow ponds for laying their eggs, and the deeper lakes for hibernation during the winter. But in the west, these habitats are being taken away. It's not necessarily even taking away. I mean, often that is the case, but even blocking access. So things like roads can, um, can really have a strong effect. So if your breeding habitat is on one side of the road and your overwintering habitat's on the other side, all of a sudden you've, you've opened up a whole new set of problems for them to deal with. Mm -hmm. A road. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> which, which, I mean, uh, everybody knows what roadkill's like, but you don't even see that frog or you don't even feel it. And that's not all that's hurting these frogs. Environmental contaminants like pesticides and fertilizers can have a huge effect on amphibians, and northern leopard frogs are no exception.
chemical pollution has been shown to cause increased mortality in their tadpoles and can make adult frogs more susceptible to pathogens like chytrid. So a big part of that is going back to the fact that they breathe through their skin. So their skin, because it's meant to be breathed through, isn't like ours where it would protect us from, from a lot of chemical exposure. It just lets it right through. So, And often these ponds are in close relation to agriculture, industry, and municipal areas. So when you have things that are in runoff, like fertilizers or, or chemical runoff from uh, industrial areas, it has a profound effect on them, absolutely. They're one of the first things that we see being affected by changes in water quality or, or pollution. Because of this, because frogs and salamanders are often so quickly affected by changes in their environment, the decline of amphibians in an area is seen as the first sign that something has gone wrong. In ecology, they're often referred to as indicator species. Basically, an indicator species is a species, kind of like I said, where it's going to be the first one impacted. So by judging the health of a population of an indicator species, you can kind of judge the health of its environment and its ecosystem. So in this case, uh, frogs act as a very good indicator species for wetland health. Some of you are probably aware wetland health is important for water filtration and water quality for us as humans. So it is quite useful to, to examine the health of frog populations from a human perspective. The idea that amphibians make useful indicator species has become a popular one, and most people have probably heard this explanation before. And Somers has a point. This line of thinking can be used to more concretely justify the conservation of frogs and amphibians, tying their fate directly into ours. If they're dying, then the wetland is dying. And without wetlands, we have dirtier water and more flooding. A prospect many Albertans are now likely intimately familiar with. But this line of thinking also has its drawbacks. Consciously or not, thinking of amphibians as an inevitable first casualty of any kind of environmental disturbance makes them seem delicate, weak, as if a strong breeze is all it would take to upset their fragile little lives. Thinking of amphibians this way almost makes their extinction feel inevitable, as if they're just not tough enough to exist in our modern world. Colbert takes exception to this idea. I am not sure it's fair to say that they are good indicators. Amphibians obviously are in contact with their environment and they need aquatic environment and a, you know, land environment and, and all that. But many people have also made, made the point, you know, amphibians are, are very, very tough. They've been around, you know, way longer than anything else. They've been around, you know, for 250 million years. Colbert is right. Amphibians have been around forever. Like I said in the beginning of this episode, they evolved before the time of the dinosaurs and have not only survived two of the worst extinctions in the history of life, but thrived in the aftermath of both. Amphibians are far from being pushovers, which is why Colbert also proposes a different way of thinking about their current declines. You know, maybe they, they, the fact that they're going should, should be, you know, extremely alarming to us precisely because they are so tough. 
Northern leopard frogs in Western Canada aren't dying off just because of chytrid. And they aren't dying off just because of habitat loss or chemical pollution. It's all of it, taken as a whole. Looking at the big picture, it's no wonder northern leopard frogs have been suffering. Any one of those factors by themselves would have been enough to wipe out many other species, and in some cases, they have been enough to wipe out other species. Looking at it this way, it's amazing that these frogs aren't already extinct, that they've been able to survive somehow through everything we've thrown at them. And it's heartbreaking that we've managed to let things get this bad in the first place. So, building on what Colbert said, I propose a new way of thinking about amphibians. A new narrative to replace the fatalism of the first-to-be-affected indicator species mindset. A mindset that has its uses, but one that I also believe has let us normalize the damage we've been causing to these extraordinary animals. To think that there's nothing that could have been done to stop it. To place the blame solely on boogeymen like Kitrid, Shifting responsibility to a force we can't yet control. Of course, Kitrid is still dangerous. It's directly responsible for amphibian extinctions around the world, and should be treated with the seriousness it deserves. But it's tempting to forget about everything else we're throwing at amphibians. Just think about the northern leopard frogs in western Canada. If their environment wasn't so damaged, they would probably be doing just as well as the eastern population. Kitrid wouldn't even be an issue. And they can't be an isolated case. How many other species are, even now, only suffering from chytrid because their environment was already weakened? How many have already gone extinct? And how many could we have saved if only we had stepped in to help before chytrid pushed them over the edge? Amphibians dying out around the world isn't an indicator that things are just getting bad. They're an indicator that things have been bad for a long time. And that we just haven't been paying attention. But we're paying attention now. And despite everything, despite Kitrid, despite the extinctions, despite how messed up we let things get, it isn't too late to make things right. To start to fix the damage that we've caused. So let's not write off amphibians as a fragile early warning signal. One that's already as good as gone. Amphibians are tough. And they're still here. For now. Instead, let's think of them as a wake-up call. A last chance to turn things around. Because if a group as tough and as long-lived as amphibians can't make it in our world, then what chance do the rest of us have?
My name is Sean Willett, and this has been The Red List. If you want to learn more about the chytrid fungus and other unforeseen consequences human activity has had on our environment, I strongly recommend Elizabeth Colbert's book, The Sixth Extinction. It's a must-read for anyone even remotely interested in conservation and the future of our planet, which, since you are currently listening to a podcast about these things, I assume is you. This show is brought to you by CJSW 90.9 FM, Calgary's independent radio station. You can find this show and many more CJSW podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, and CJSW.com. While you're on iTunes, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. I really appreciate it, and it makes me feel warm, happy feelings. You can also follow me on Twitter at RedListCJSW, where I tweet updates about the show and conservation news. Our theme song is Deuteronomy 210 by the Mountain Goats, and the rest of the music was provided by Jazzar and Poddington Bear of a free music archive. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep watching. <laughs>